Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, what is the best explanation for the way things are? What is the best explanation for reality? Why is there a universe? Why is there life? Why are there human beings, morality, meaning, beauty, love, pain, death, religion? What's, what, what explains all this? Should we even be looking for explanations? Well, we're here to look for explanations today with Dr. Paul M. Gould. He's got a brand new book. It just came out. It's called A Good and True Story, 11 Clues to Understanding Our Universe and Your Place in It. Paul teaches at Palm Beach Atlantic University. He's written 12 books. This is the newest. It's great to have him on the program. Paul, how are you? Doing good. It's great to be here with you, Frank. Now, why did you decide to write this book? Yeah, that's actually a good question. Um, there's a couple reasons. Uh, a couple years ago, I wrote a book called Cultural Apologetics, and mm -hmm. that was written for Christians, just thinking really deeply about this question that actually I've been wrestling with for years. And the question is basically, how does the gospel get a fair hearing in our culture? Mm -hmm. um, there's just so much noise, and people don't always want to hear what Christians have to say. And so was thinking really deeply about that. And in the book Cultural Apologetics, at the end, I kind of um, argued one of the ways that we can join with God and each other to re-enchant the world. We live in this disenchanted world, and Part of what we need to do is to re-enchant the world and help people see reality as it is. And so I gave these two kind of ideas. One is that we, we as Christians, would learn to see and delight in the world the way Jesus does. And then secondly, that we would invite others to see and delight in the world the way Jesus does. And those two ideas are two future book projects. And this one here is for that second idea of how can we show people who are on the way that are not yet believers or non-believers, how can we point them to the world such that they see it and delight in it and it evokes this sense of, you know, maybe there's a, a, a God out there. And so that's, that's the sort of prep, uh, impetus for writing the book. Now, how did you become a Christian? Yeah, well, so kind of interesting. Uh, I thought I was religious growing up, went to church, but uh, missed the gospel. And mm -hmm. as a freshman in college, two guys knocked on my freshman door mm -hmm. and said, do you want to have a spiritual conversation? And again, because I thought I was religious, I was like, sure, come on in. And they shared the gospel with me. And as they were doing this, as my heart was sinking, I'm realizing, okay, wait, if this is the gospel, I've missed the boat. And uh, they finally left, uh, didn't become a Christian at that time. But um, there are two questions that sort of were niggling me uh, at that moment. One was, wait a minute, if this is true, I've missed the boat. Mm -hmm. um, and, and why are these guys that are sort of normal looking, like Christians, people, uh, believe that God is like relevant to their life? Those are the two questions that sort of animated me. And so I did something that I now know is not normal. Um, I actually went to the local apologetics class at the local church. And for a whole year, I would walk in and, and uh, the professor would have a big stack of books on whatever topic they were talking about. And, you know, they'd go through the arguments for Jesus or the resurrection or God's existence. And at the end, they'd say, what do you think about the evidence, Paul? And my answer would be, it's pretty compelling. And then, then they would say, well, at some point you need to make a decision. And I'd say, yeah, you're right. And that went on for like a year. And then finally, long story short, but I think I realized 
that this is true. And so that was sort of the conclusion that I, I arrived at. But then the idea was, hey, I'm just going to, you know, kind of live the wildlife in college. And then after that, I'll put God into my life. And I think it was somewhere in that summer after that freshman year, though, I realized that that was foolish, right? If this is actually true, that it demands all of my life. And so that's when I became Where, where were you going to college? Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Actually. Okay, yeah. in, in Oxford. That's and right. there was a church that actually had an apologetics program. They wow, did, that's yeah. that's hard to believe. Yeah, and I didn't, and I just thought that's when? what it was. What, what year was oh, this? Oh, this is a long time ago. So this has been like 1990. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. All right. A few years ago. Yeah. And then you went on and you have your PhD from Purdue in mm -hmm. philosophy? I do. Yeah. And so, so fun fact, I was an undergraduate uh, accounting major. So I actually started out in, as a CPA. This right doesn't out of college. add up, Paul. It doesn't add up, no. I know. But uh -huh. because God had got such a hold of my life mm -hmm. in college, I had a huge heart for college students. And I wanted to work with college students and see them uh, come to Christ. And so anyway, my wife and I both had become Christians in college. We had a huge heart for college students. So we went on staff with a, a campus uh, ministry mm -hmm. and worked as campus pastors. And that's where what I would call this beach ball, this passion for learning. Uh, and it was in evangelism. I'd always toward the intellectuals or those who thought they're intellectuals. And I wanted to have conversations about Jesus in the context of ideas. And so that formed into this beach ball, which mm -hmm. is this love of learning. You know, what is the truth about these things? But I'd shove that beach ball under the surface for a couple of years. And finally, I said, God, how do these desires to learn fit into my calling? And so that set me on this path to get the education and, you know, become a philosopher. Now, you mentioned a, a phrase before, re-enchantment, or you yeah. want to re-enchant the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, my son and I wrote a book not long ago called Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. And we noticed that in movies, which many are stolen from the greatest story ever That's told, right. yep. we're enchanted with the storyline because people are in distress, they're experiencing evil, and a hero comes in and rescues mm -hmm. them, which of course is really what happens in Christianity too. We're, we're, yeah. we're distressed. We want to be taken to the promised mm -hmm. land. And so we see, we see all these <clears throat> movies do that. They, they kind of re-enchant our yeah. wonder with the world. They give us more wonder with the world. That's the aim here of this book, a good and true story. So in this book, it's written for a non-believer to mm -hmm. get re-enchanted with the world. It's not like you're, you, you open up by saying the Bible says, right? right. No, what that's do you, right. How do you, yeah. how do you go about doing it? Good. Yeah, no. So, uh, um, yeah, it's written for, for non-believers. Mm -hmm. I guess my, I have a couple assumptions, um, that sort of inform the way that the book, actually three that, that kind of inform how I wrote the book. One is, is a thesis about reality. And it's just this ancient idea that reality to use, to speak with the learned, as I tell my students, um, in the Latin reality is structured like a kind of story with Exodus read it as exit and return. Like all things are from God and one day all things will return to God. And this is kind of the fabric of reality that there's this kind of ongoing journey. And then we as humans, this is the second thesis uh, thesis about us is we kind of take up our place and we're seeking this true story of the world. Like how do we find our identity, our meaning, our purpose? Mm -hmm. And then there's this other thesis about evidence. And I'm thinking of, um, well, the idea is that evidence is actually widely available. Like everywhere we look, you know, it, anything in creation at some level points to the divine and the cause behind it all. And so there's this idea that evidence is widely available, but it's in some sense easily resistible because it needs to be interpreted. And so mm -hmm. what I want to do is take the reader on a journey, look at that evidence, and then help guide them to what is the best explanation for this. And so that's kind of what we're doing. Okay, you got book. a chapter here right yeah. here on the universe. What, why does the universe point to God? 
Let's start there. Well, uh, yeah, so four features mm-hmm. that I, I think are sort of evocative mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. some explanation, and that's the idea that the universe is contingent, mm-hmm. right? It didn't have to exist, but here we are. Mm-hmm. All the things in the universe are contingent. Number one, it's it's temporally finite. Mm-hmm. It didn't always exist. It had a beginning. Number two, it's immense. Like when you look at the actual numbers, the universe is vast, it's huge, it's amazing. And then number four, it's also finely tuned for life. And so kind of walking through these features, they, they press all these questions. Like what is, why did the universe begin? Um, what explains, you know, if it's contingent, you know, it seems like we, we need a cause, what mm-hmm. it best explains uh, that we exist. And then there's this question about how, why all the fine tuning? Why is it tuned to life? And, and again, I think the best explanation for all those are some version of the cosmological or teleological mm-hmm. arguments mm-hmm. for God. So it's contingent. It uh, had a beginning. Yep. It uh, is fine tuned and, and it's fine. immense. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Those, those are the four yes. on the universe. Mm-hmm. Now, this doesn't necessarily prove the Christian God. I mean, it could be the Christian God, right? You don't get all the way to the Christian God from this this, uh, Mm -hmm. argument. Uh, So you're kind of combining the cosmological and teleological arguments here in this first chapter. A little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. with the Mm fine-tuning. Okay, all right. Um, The next uh, thing that you look into is the existence of life itself. Why do we think life points to God? Yeah, so just to back up, the kind of one of the uh, trying to be a little creative, I um, have these sort of personified guides. So Lady Nature is with us for these four origin all debates, right? 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 So she's Lady Nature is before saying, look at the features of the world that we mm-hmm. find. And so we go from the, and, and I wanted to explore these four origin debates because I think these are fascinating. Why do we have life at all? Why do we have all this diversity? Why do we have humans? And so, yeah, so with life, I mean, you, ha- you have this incredible transition from chemistry to biology mm-hmm. and this question. Is, so actually, like, there's this question, first of all, what is life? And I spend some time as a philosopher, I'm curious on these things. But then there's this other question, what best explains the origin of life? And mm-hmm. there, it's just amazing the strength of the arguments for God, right? It's just really hard to see how something can come from chemistry and biology by natural, unguided processes. And so that's sort of what I'm working with there. Well, let's uh, pick that up right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. My guest is Paul Gould. His brand new book, A Good and True Story, 11 Clues to Understanding Our Universe and Your Place in It. You want to pick it up and we'll continue right after this. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. If you're low on the FM dial looking for national public radio, go no further. You will never, ever, ever hear this on NPR unless the Lord comes back and sets them straight. (laughs) Because they're never going to talk about issues like this. But we are... We are talking with uh, Dr. Paul Gould. His brand new book, A Good and True Story, is all about the idea that there are pointers, clues, at least 11 of them, that will show you your place in the universe. And why does the universe exist? Paul, just before the break, we were talking about the origin of life itself. Is there any viable naturalistic explanation that the atheists or non-believers will say, hey, this is a pretty good explanation for how life got here? Well, so what's so interesting about that question is when you look at the literature, you read what scientists are saying, there is a gap between the confident pronouncements that we will, it's just like, you know, we will solve this problem. If there, there will be a naturalistic cause to this. We just haven't got there yet. And the reality of the evidence and the complexity, the more we learn about the cell, the more we learn about life, the more difficult it actually becomes to explain life for naturalistic processes. And so I would say there are people working on it and they're very confident that they'll, they'll find an 
naturalistic explanation. Um, but you know, what's so interesting, Jim Tor, who's like a, a leading um, chemist and yeah. teaches at Rice University, he basically says, look, he's kind of calling out his colleagues. He says, look guys, don't we no, none of us know what we're doing here. You know, it's incredibly complex to get life from non-life. And he's basically, basically saying, if anybody tells you that we've discovered how to do that, it's, you know, he doesn't say it's a lie, but you know, it's, it, it's not the case. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you even have like these fantastical um, ideas, like maybe life came from outer space, right? Mm -hmm, you know, you have mm -hmm. Francis Crick that famously um, proposed that and others. So th those kind of proposals show you how difficult it really is to find a naturalistic explanation. Mm -hmm. And even if that was the explanation, it would just push the question back. Like, where did it come from in outer space? Right. And we'd still have the same question. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yep. And I think there's also a difference between saying we haven't found any natural explanation for it. If you just plug God in, that would be a God of the gaps argument. Mm -hmm. But also, it seems there's positive, empirically verifiable evidence for an intelligent cause. Right. Yeah. When you look at the fact that there's a genome there, a program, mm -hmm. programs come from programmers, and codes come from coders, and messages come from minds. So it seems to be there's positive evidence, there's some kind of intelligence out there yeah. that would bring life into existence. Um, then you have a chapter here on species. What's that mm -hmm. about? Yeah, so we're moving from life, and, and actually part of, what, part of what we're doing is we're also, we're kind of following the history of the, of the universe, mm -hmm. right? So we begin with the universe, it began a finite time mm -hmm. ago, and then, and then there's a period of time, and then suddenly life appears, at least as far as we know, on the standard sort of picture of the age of the universe, it appears here only in one place, mm -hmm. Earth, and about, in, in estimates, uh, the oldest fossils are about 3.5 um, billion years mm -hmm. ago that we have some fossils of life. So, you know, you've got a fairly... Uh, finite time that life has appeared, but then over the next, you know, large number of years, life begins to sort of, the universe begins, or the earth begins to wake up and life begins to take shape and it becomes, begins to become very diverse. And so the question is, where did all this diverse life come from, right? Mm -hmm. If we have just these single cells, how did it develop into the kind of um, life that we see today? And one of the fascinating thing was, things were, as I looked at this, is that actually 99% of species that have existed are now extinct. And so even though we have an incredible diversity of life now, it's nothing compared to the history of life mm, that mm, we've had on Earth. Mm. And again, this is one of these questions. I know, it, I know there's the debate over evolution and creation has become sort of toxic and sometimes it's hard to navigate through that. But within that, if you kind of set that aside, there is this wonderful fact, the diversity of life, the wonder of life. And how did that come up? How did that arise? And that's the thing that I was most interested in, in exploring. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the word toxic. You would think in a world of um, science that the word toxic, toxic wouldn't be used to talk about whether or not life was created or somehow evolved, but it is toxic. Why mm -hmm. do you think it's toxic that scientists are worried that people might say, you know, there's intelligence behind all this? Is it, is it more than just the science that is having mm -hmm. these people worried? Yeah, I think that's a really astute question. Um, I think the closer you get to the question of what does it mean to be human, and the minute we start talking about the diversity of life, we're going to have to talk about what does it mean to be human. Um, the closer you get to that question, I think the more worldview issues come in. And it is true that there's often an anti-supernatural bias mm -hmm. a lot um, in the sciences. Uh, mm -hmm. not, all the, uh, not all the time, but it mm -hmm. is true that there is this bias. And there's also this incredible sociological pressure, actually, in the academy. I know this because I've uh, worked with professors for years. There's an incredible sociological pressure to sort of maintain the status quo. Mm -hmm. and of course, the status quo is some version of either the Darwinian synthesis or some other, some other non-Darwinian evolutionary story that's naturalistic. And so there's, there's a lot of pressure there even, um, 
you know, if we want to be card-carrying members in the academy, even as theists, the majority of Christians are theistic evolutionists, right? And, and, and in some ways, we shouldn't be afraid of that. Like, if God did it this way, fine. But mm-hmm. my question in this book was, like, well, let's look at the evidence. Let's do the best we can, even as a non-specialist. I'm not a scientist. I'm a philosopher. But I think we can assess the evidence because a lot of it is driven by worldview issues as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we've said before that science doesn't say anything scientists do. And if, as Einstein said, unfortunately, the man of science is a poor philosopher. You've got to gather and interpret data. And quite often, how they interpret the data is based on their Mm pre-existing worldview. They're going to rule out any kind of intelligent cause before they look at the evidence. It also seems to me there's a moral issue here. Uh, why did why do so many scientists get so allergic to the possibility of there being a divine intelligence out there? It seems to me it's because if there is a divine intelligence out there and he cares about what we do, then suddenly there's a moral yeah. component, which you're gonna, yeah. we're going to get to here in the book, yeah. and that won't allow them to just do whatever they want to do. There's, there's a problem there. Yeah, I've always been struck with, you've, I'm sure you know the quote, but Thomas Nagel is a really mm-hmm. important philosopher. Mm-hmm. You know, he wrote this book in 1996 mm-hmm. called The Last Word, and mm-hmm. he says, you know, I'm basically bothered by the fact that the smartest people I know are Christians, you right. know? <laughs> and, he, and then he says, it's really, there's a couple of things he says that are so revealing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he says, I don't want there to be a God. Mm-hmm. I don't want the universe to be like that. But then he says, if you continue on in the next paragraph, he says, and part of the reason is I have a cosmic authority issue. Yeah. And we're like, yeah, we, we, I get it. That's right. called sin. We all have that, right? But um, yeah. So a it's, cosmic yeah. authority problem. Yes, we and all at do. The t- at the time yeah. when he wrote that in the 90s, he said, I think that Richard Dawkins has a cosmic authority problem like I do. Yeah. And, and Christopher yeah. Hitchens as well. Yeah. So that's, that, that, that is interesting. So you, you cover this all at a lay level so people mm-hmm. can all understand yep. this. And uh, then when we get to humanity, you have a question here, or a question, a chapter here on human beings. Uh, they point back to God. How so? Well, in some ways, um, I, I love there's this quote by G.K. G. Chesterton in his book, Everlasting Man, where he says this really provocative thing that um, it is not natural to think of man as natural, you know, mm-hmm. and that's a really provocative idea. There's something unique and significant about humans, right? Mm-hmm. And and on the standard maybe Darwinian story, as Darwin, Darwin famously said in his book, Descent of Man, that we are not different in kind from the apes, we're just different in degrees, we've got larger brains. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the reality is, and the intuition at least is that, no, we're not just different in degree, we're different in kind. And that points to kind of unique significance. Um, and so I wanted to explore that question. You know, why is it, as Chesterton would say, that man alone creates art and man mm-hmm. alone, you know, has intelligence and, and rationality and will and imagination and all these things. And again, that would be another feature of the world that I think cries out for explanation. And I mm-hmm. wanted to have to explore the evidence uh, mm-hmm. from both sides mm-hmm. on that. How about morality? That's a chapter as mm-hmm. well. Uh, Without just referencing scripture, why would you say there's a moral code out there, and how does that point back to a moral lawgiver? Yeah, so again, so here we switch. We've had Lady Nature has been kind of Mm -hmm. with us on the journey, and by the time we get to morality, I, I invite this other journey mate, uh, Lady Philosophy, who also showed up in a lot of medieval mm-hmm. uh, literature. And so I was interacting with Boethius' book, Consolation of Philosophy, where Boethius has found himself in prison, uh, unjustly um, accused of some things by the king there. And, and he basically begins to ask these questions about, was my life worth anything? You know, mm-hmm. where can happiness be found? And Lady Philosophy mm-hmm. begins to console him of this question, is there meaningful happiness? And so to get to that the next three chapters we need to deal with morality and then meaning and then meaningful happiness. And the reality is like, you know, 
there is a moral landscape, right? Because we all, uh, even if it's just subjective, we all have views of what you ought to do and what you ought not to do. And so, that, so one thing to just note is that there is a moral landscape, even if it's only subjective. But then there's arguments that can be made that, no, there's at least some objective moral truths out there, right? There's facts. Like, honesty is a virtue. That's a fact that I would submit is just as true as some physical fact mm-hmm. about this table or chair. Um, and if there are these objective moral facts, you know, and so there's arguments that can be made for that, then you lead to that, the next question, what best explains that? And as it turns out, there's at least, there's basically three options. I think there's one option is nothing explains them. It's just a brute a brute fact, right? There's no explanation. An explanation stops somewhere. And I explored that. I explored Eric Weilenberg, who's a leading uh, mm-hmm. Platonic atheist who, who kind of goes that route. And then there's this other sort of move that a lot of people make. No, the universe somehow accounts for objective moral facts. And so you have like um, your Thomas Nagels, actually, his book Mind and Cosmos tries to ground objective moral value in the universe itself. And there's other people. So I explored that. And then eventually you just land on the theistic option, right? If there's these obligations, uh, it seems that, you know, we, all, we owe obligations to persons. And theism would accommodate that, that kind of idea, I think, quite nicely. And so, again, just walking through the arguments, it looks like another clue that, that points mm-hmm. to something beyond this world. How can we have morality, or how do the atheists deal with this, Paul, uh, when they say they, there is objective morality, but... They don't, uh, they don't believe there's objective purpose. So how can you have objective morality, an objective right way to live toward yeah. a purpose if there is no purpose? Yeah, right. So good. I, I think that if we were going to be a platonic atheist who had that sort mm-hmm. of a view, um, and, and actually sometimes you could make moves like this. You could distinguish between like the meaning of life and mm-hmm. meaning in life, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so I could see someone like that that says there's a kind of morality that gives us meaning in life, right? So there's no real meaning out there mm-hmm. to the universe, mm-hmm. but living this cer- certain way makes my life meaningful for me. Mm-hmm. And my guess is that's probably the best you get. Um, well, you know, how, do you, how would such a person deal with Hitler who says right. what makes life meaningful for me is to create my own super race and killing everybody that's in that's my right. way? Yeah. Is there any way to adjudicate that? No. Probably not at the end of the day. Right. right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. Wielenberg's position is what? He he has a, he's, he's a Platonist? Is that yeah, what he's so saying? Yeah, so he's an atheist who's a kind of Platonist. So there are, there are objective moral values. Uh-huh. There's an objective moral order. And I think he would even agree that there's meaning in life. Uh-huh. Um, it, and maybe not anything beyond that. There's no cosmic meaning to right. the universe or something like that. And so that's good enough, right? And so like I, in fact, one of the, in the meaning chapter, I looked at Owen Flanagan, who's a leading philosopher at Duke University, mm-hmm. and he wrote this book. Um, and the book, the title of the book was The Really Hard Problem, right? Finding meaning in a naturalistic world. And it's so interesting. He's riffing on this other really hard problem, the problem of consciousness. He says that one's hard, but the question of meaning in a naturalistic world is even harder. But he ends up at the end of the day saying, well, you know, we can have something that's good enough for, for, for meaning. What does and he mean by good? Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So there's a kind of meaning landscape, uh-huh. you know, and he grounds it in culture and the world that we find ourselves in. But Whose culture? The one that he finds himself oh, in. You're okay. right. You're asking all the right questions, all right, right? right? These are the kinds of pushbacks that we, that we want to give. Um, well, yeah. let's talk <laughs> about meaning. Uh, is there objective meaning? Uh, Right after the break, you're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk. We're on the American Family Radio Network, 180 or so stations around the country, talking to Dr. Paul Gould, his brand new book, A Good and True Story. There is a story out there, ladies and gentlemen. You're part of it. How are you part of it? Well, you'll find 11 clues to understanding our universe and your place in it in this book. You may want to check it out. It's brand new. We're back in two minutes.
Is there true meaning? Is there true happiness? And if so, how can you find it? And where does it point? Those are a couple of the concepts we're talking about today or questions we're talking about today with Paul Gould. The book, the brand new book is A Good and True Story, just out just uh, very recently. You can uh, check it out wherever books are sold. And before I do, I want to mention, if you're listening to this before the end of the year, 2022, we've had some donors come together and give us a $100,000 matching gift, which means any money you give to Cross Examined here at the end of the year will be matched, will be doubled up to $100,000. A great way to double your impact. And as you know, 100% of your donations that come to crossexamined.org go to ministry, 0% to building. We're completely virtual. We go to college campuses, high schools, and churches. And particularly when we go to a college campus, we don't charge students a dime. You are providing the resources we need to go there. And we also, as you know, stream it to the entire world on our YouTube channel, Facebook page, Instagram, other places, our website. So you can see what we're doing out on a college campus as well. And all the Q&A that, that comes after those events, you can see as well. So thank you so much for supporting us. Back to my uh, guest today, Dr. Paul M. Gould. Paul, just before the break, we were talking about, well, you can't have objective morality unless you have a objective purpose. And if there is no God, there is no objective purpose. But what about objective meaning? Can we have objective meaning? Is there any meaning to life if there is no God? Right. Okay, good. Yeah. So in the in the book, I, I explored that question mm -hmm. and kind of, so in that chapter, what I'm interested in is we have all these deep longings of the heart. And I mm -hmm. call it this, like, I forget exactly what I call it, but this um, set of longings that we have for value, for purpose, mm -hmm. for identity, for mm -hmm. meaning, for intelligibility, and for, for these kinds of things. And so the question now is, is there a story that fits mm. with these deep longings of the human heart? And mm. so what I do is I kind of canvas two, well, actually four stories. Um, one from, you know, like, uh, the French cafe, this absurdism of like Jean-Paul Jean Sartre mm -hmm. and Camus. And then I, I look at a more contemporary view called nice nihilism, which is Alex Rosenberg uh, is a Duke philosopher who is arguing for some view like that. And then from there, I move on to Owen Flanagan, which I mentioned before the break. Um, his, his view is a kind of what I would call enchanted naturalism and walk through each of these and ask, does it fit? D does this story actually fit with the deep longings of the human heart and satisfy these deep longings and argue that none of them do? And so we arrive at the last story, which is a kind of enchanted supernaturalism. And there I look at Blaise Pascal and his you know, sort of famous quote about how we have this God-shaped void that, that it only is filled by God and we're trying to fill it with all these other things. Or C.S. Lewis who talks about how in the Christian story you have like hand and glove or, or key, key to lock. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this perfect fit between the deep longings of the heart and the, the story of the world, right? And so that's kind of what we're doing there. Um, and it was a lot of fun to think through this question of meaning. There's a lot of philosophers that have been debating this and there's a lot of vagueness with this, um, you know, and there's distinctions that need to be made about the meaning in life and the meaning of life and whether you can have one without the other. Um, but what I sort of landed on is the quest for meaning is this quest to discover our place in the universe. And, and place is this rich normative term where we, you know, understand like, all right, uh, the place where we belong and where we discover our true name. And that's the thing that we're all longing for, right? This good and true story of the world. And so it kind of syncs up really well with this idea that we're on this quest to discover this true story of the world in which we find our true name. So from the Christian perspective, which of course we believe is the right perspective right. because we think we have evidence for this, what is the meaning of life? Why are we even here? 
Well, in a word, what's so interesting is union with Christ, mm -hmm. right? So our highest good, man's highest good, the thing that we've been created for is to be united with the God who created us. Mm -hmm. Again, that's back to that Exodus, Redditus story, right? All things are from God, and then one day we, you know, all things will be made new, and for those mm -hmm. who are redeemed, we'll re we will be united with God. And so, so beyond that, though, I do cash out, because we're kind of pushing to the next chapter on meaningful happiness, mm -hmm. you know, this question, what is objective happiness, uh, not the subjective stuff, but what is, what is flourishing really look mm -hmm. like? And for me, it's, it's four things. It's a union with God, so rightly related to God, uh, rightly related to self, that's integrity or character, intellectual, moral virtue, rightly related to each other and the world mm -hmm. around us, and then rightly related to our end or our telos, the purpose that God has made each of us for. And, and there, I like, just think of like Ephesians 2.10 and this wonderful passage where Paul says, you know, we are Christ's workmanship, this work of art created in Christ Jesus to do good works, right? God has these specific things that he's created each of us to do. And that's kind of the idea of flourishing. But ultimately, yeah, the highest good is union with, with God. That's, that's the purpose. And how do we get there though? Does it require quite often going through pain and suffering? Well, I mean, it, it often does because we live in a fallen world, mm -hmm. um, for sure. Right. And I think that God uses these things to, to, as C.S. Lewis sort of famously said that God whispers to us in our consciousness, but shouts to us in our pain. Mm -hmm. So I do think there is a sense in which God uses the pain uh, and suffering and the angst in this world to awaken these deep longings that we have for the thing that will make us whole. Right. Mm -hmm. And the story that actually answers, I think, gives you the satisfying answer to the problem of pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that is often involved. Yeah. Lewis, I think I'm paraphrasing, but he said, if I have desires for things That's that right. this world can't satisfy, mm -hmm. the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. Yeah. Now, when you, you have this chapter here on happiness, mm -hmm. how would you define that? What is happiness? I mean, you mentioned those four things, but... Yeah. What is what would be what the definition it? of happiness? Yeah, yeah. How do you get your mind around that? No, that's great because everyone wants it, right? right. Everyone's searching for. I don't it. want to be yeah. happy. What do you mean yeah, by that? Exactly. Is that, is that is it? Are we confusing happiness and pleasure, or often, mm -hmm. or happiness and and comfort? I mean, what yeah. what is true happiness? Good. I guess. Well, that's exactly the way that we uh, I structured this. Is so and so I, in the book I, I, we enter back into Boethius' the story and the consolation of philosophy because he's asking that exact question: What brings happiness mm -hmm. in life? And so he has all these counterfeit gods. Is it fame? Is it wealth? Is it success? Is it, uh, you know, all these things? And so we kind of walk through all those and then we get that get the answer to those four things. But but even before that, it would be helpful to, to, to distinguish. There's kind of a shallow view of happiness that I think if you talk to the man or the woman on the streets and ask this question, what is happiness? They would probably say something like, like you did earlier, like subjective pleasure or the maximization of desires or something mm -hmm. like that. That's a very contemporary and shallow view mm -hmm. of happiness. But classically, happiness was understood as flourishing in light of our nature, right? So notice even in that, then that requires this whole metaphysical backdrop, right? What do you mean we have natures? We have the way we ought to be, right? There's a teleology mm -hmm. built in there. And then we have to discover that, right? And so there's a rich Christian tradition, actually, of filling out the details of that. And it usually involves something like, like I love Peter Craft. He wrote this book called Back to Virtue, where he, he gives a sevenfold picture of the flourishing or the happy life. And it, as it turns out, it's the virtuous life. So you have the four classic virtues of courage, wisdom, temperance, and justice. And then the church adds the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. And that's like your picture of a flourishing life is a certain kind of person, you know? And, and of course, that entails being connected to the God who creates us. So, so it's maybe less associated with circumstances than character? Is that a fair way of saying what true happiness true is? Happiness? Yeah, it's, it's going to be disconnected in, in a way from that because happiness is, um, and again, right, we're on a journey. And that's right. the whole thing, even with faith, like faith is the path mm -hmm. as we journey in hope, 
toward love, right? This is the beauty of the, the theological virtues, but the hope is the one virtue that we don't take with us um, into the afterlife, right? Because mm-hmm. one day all the deep longings will mm-hmm. be satisfied, right? Mm-hmm. And all the, the angst and the, the failures and the, and the things that we fail on won't, won't be there. And mm-hmm. so that's the kind of interesting thing. Theologians talk about, well, this is the one virtue we don't take with us mm-hmm. because we'll, we'll have fulfillment of all the deep longings of the heart. Now, would you equate the, the <clears throat> biblical happiness to contentment more than just, I'm feeling, um, I, how do I, I can't use the word happy. I'm trying to figure out another word. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling... Mm-hmm. Um, upbeat today, you know, that's, I mean, what is, cause you can feel upbeat, uh, sinning, right? (laughs) right? You can feel upbeat getting something for nothing. Mm -hmm. You can feel upbeat with pleasure. So what is this more lasting, deep, thick kind of happiness? How would, yeah, yeah, it's a great, great question. So like, I do think that, so what's so interesting, I do think pleasure and success and fame, there's mm-hmm. a sense of fame, all, all these things that are actually ingredients mm-hmm. in that ultimate happiness, that mm-hmm. objective happiness, but they're just not the thing itself, right? Okay. Um, and even when you, so now that we're talking on the Christian story, what's so interesting, like think of C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory, he, in that essay with that title, he talks about what's so interesting on the Christian story that we get to be even be part of God's happiness as we're united with God. That's the weight of glory, fame, right? Mm-hmm. Fame. One way to understand fame is this kind of excellence, uh, and, uh, you mm-hmm. know, and so we have this weight of glory. Yeah, so it's, it's I think, just um, being connected or, uh, yeah, experiencing life and becoming the kind of people that God wants us to be. And, of course, the, the joy or the pleasure, that those things come and go. They are mm-hmm. ingredients in happiness, but that's not what happiness actually is. Yeah, because when you think about Paul, Paul's writing about joy. Right. Not, mm-hmm. not you, Paul, the, you know, the yeah, other Paul. The other one. The yeah. one you're named after. The saint. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> He's writing from a Roman prison when he's writing about joy in Philippians. So his circumstances are pretty bad, but yet somehow he has this contentment about him, Mm -hmm. this strength, this ability to know that he's flourishing somehow, even though Mm -hmm. his circumstances are bad. That's right. Because the highest good for man is not, it's a relational good. Mm -hmm. The highest good is union with God. That's why Augustine got it exactly right. You know, in the the confessions, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, right? Mm -hmm. So, so not only the deepest longing of the human heart is for God, as it turns out, the deepest subjective longing is connected with the highest good being united with God. And so, yeah. So that's why Paul can have contentment because the thing that makes him flourish are relational goods. And those things are impervious to the, you know, whether it's in prison or in want or need or things like that. So I don't know if it was Chesterton who said this, um, maybe attributed to him, mm-hmm. but he said that any man knocking on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Have you heard that before? It's something like that. I don't, I don't that, know if yeah. it's Chesterton or mm-hmm. not. It sounds like Chesterton. Yeah, it does. Could, could be yeah. somebody else. Yeah. But we're all searching for this. And we're searching for good thing. I mean, sex is a good thing, quite obviously. But if we get it out of order, that's when we get into trouble, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, it seems uh, that we are disordering ourselves when we seek good things at the expense of the best thing. 
Mm-hmm. Would that be a fair way of putting it? Yeah. I mean, I think, so one way I think of our longings is think of it mm-hmm. like as an inverted triangle, right? So mm-hmm. think of all the things that we desire, put it like in, in the set of it, this inverted triangle, you've got your surface desires at the mm-hmm. top. Like right now I'm hungry for a hamburger, mm-hmm. right? That's a surface thing. Mm-hmm. Once I get that hamburger, that desire has gone, right? right? But then as you go down, you have like your deep desires and then your deepest desire. And of mm-hmm. course that deepest desire is, is union with God. It's mm-hmm. the, our hearts are restless until mm-hmm. they find union. But right above that, and this is what C.S. Lewis does so well in all his arguments from desire. Right above the deepest longing, we have these deep longings of the heart for goodness, truth, beauty, um, justice, love, meaning, you know, and identity, all that stuff. And so these are, so, so if this is how God has made us, I think that like that if it was Chesterton who said that, that quote is actually perceptive, right? Because we have these deep longings and we're just trying and, and we're, we're, we're seeking the object. We're on a quest to find the object that satisfies that longing, mm-hmm. right? We think it will be found in pleasure and we, turn, we learn that ultimately that's not it, right? And so we're going to untether. And if we faithfully follow this sort of dialectic of desires, Lewis actually talks about, eventually that will lead us to the true object of our longing of all those deep desires, including that deepest desire, mm. which is Christ. Mm. Well, we've got much more with Dr. Paul Gould, his new book, A Good and True Story, 11 Clues to Understanding Our Universe and Your Place in It. And as we come up here to the end of year, keep in mind, in addition to uh, our $100,000 matching gift, we also have some new courses, new online courses coming out uh, in the new year. Go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, one from Stephen C. Meyer, another from Scott Klusendorf, if you want to be a part of, and I'll be teaching one as well. We're back in two minutes. Don't go anywhere. Does beauty point to God? And if so, how? God's an immaterial being, so how can he be beautiful? Well, we're talking to Dr. Paul Gould. A Good and True Story is his new book. All these pointers, there's 11 of them that he talks about in the book that actually point to God. One of them's beauty, Paul. How does that point to God? God's an immaterial being. How is he beautiful? Yeah, well, it all depends what beauty is, I guess, right? right? Yeah, yeah, so so what's so interesting... um, there's a debate about beauty and whether it's an objective feature of the world or if it's subjective, it's in the eye of the beholder. I would, I firmly land on the side that beauty is an objective feature mm-hmm. in the world in the same way that there are moral facts. We mm-hmm. talked about that earlier. I believe that there are aesthetic facts. Mm-hmm. The, the sunset is objectively beauty or we're sitting here in, Cal- in Denver, right? And the, the Rocky Mountains are objectively mm-hmm. beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so again, the question is, well, what's the nature of beauty? And then what does that tell us about the nature of the world and transcendent mm-hmm. reality? And so in, in writing that chapter, what was so interesting, um, two things about beauty that stood out that people have noticed one is the like you the ubiquitous nature of beauty like it's everywhere right like um if naturalism is true like think about art it's really it's really easy to make art but it's really hard to make beautiful art right it takes a certain kind of artist a certain kind of skill um if naturalism was true you wouldn't expect beauty to be to be the world to be saturated with beauty everywhere you turn from the cell to the cosmos you find beautiful beauty everywhere mm-hmm. so that's one interesting fact or piece of evidence is the fact that the universe is saturated with beauty and the second piece of evidence that was so interesting is and the language I put, I called it this transcendent nature of beauty. Um, and a lot of writers throughout, all, from Plato all the way to contemporary thinkers, have noticed that there's something evocative about beauty. Like Plato famously said, beauty evokes desire. Right? Mm-hmm. It awakens something within us. Mm-hmm. And it kind of sets us on this journey to, to, to find that object of, of longing. And so there's this kind of transcendent quality. As one writer, um, her name was El- Elaine Scarry. She wrote this book called Beauty and, and Justice. But she talked about how... Um, 
writers throughout history have noticed that there's something about beauty that, that points to the eternality of it, right? This is sort of something that, that, that's beyond this world. And so if you plug that into this argument, these two facts cry out for explanation. And again, the best explanation, given the saturated nature of it and the fact that if, if it really doesn't point beyond uh, just this world is kind of a, a bad explanation for beauty. Um, as it turns out, there's a pretty strong argument from beauty to um, a God as a source of beauty. Yeah, and so that's that's what I explore in that chapter. So how, how can he, though, be if he's immediate? Oh, well, it, we, always think, okay. we always think of beauty as something physical. Yeah. That's not always the case, though. Right, but right. Go ahead. So, so Aquinas, this is what I find really interesting. Aquinas, you know, this 13th century monk, uh -huh. uh, you know, who would have thought that he would have really interesting things to say about uh -huh. beauty. But he, he said two things that I think are super provocative. Number one, that beauty is, is that which is pleasing to apprehend. And so it's pleasing, that's the idea of evoking desire, right. but to apprehend. And what he means there is not, he's not talking about just visible beauty, the kind of okay. thing that you're talking about. He's talking about anything. It could even be like the laws of nature. Mm. They're, they're pleasant to apprehend in the mind's eye. Okay. Right. So that would be one thing. And then the second thing, well, actually he says three things, but the other thing he does is he makes this connection. And here's the distinction. I would want to distinguish, and this is a rich history of thinking this way in the Christian tradition between these three things, the experience of beauty, beautiful things, and then beauty itself, right? So mm -hmm. we, we have the experience of beauty as humans, right? We, we, have, we encounter things that are pleasant to apprehend. Mm -hmm. and, we, and then Aquinas says some interesting things about the criteria that for beautiful things, right? He, had, he, he gave these three criteria. They have perfection, wholeness, and this, he called it radiance, this, mm -hmm. kind of, this kind of call. It kind of calls to you. It's this evocative, transcendent mm -hmm. nature of beautiful things. We could quibble about the criteria, right? Um, but then he gives this theistic grounding to it where the source of beauty itself is God, right? So beautiful things participate in beauty itself. So the, the tradition locates beauty itself in deity. Mm. And that seems like the proper starting place, the, the thing with perfect wholeness, perfect integrity, and perfect radiance, right, mm -hmm. is God. And so mm. God is beauty itself. Yeah, I know people have said it's in the eye of the, be eye of the yeah. beholder, but it seems to me that's kind of an argument from the beard in logic. Yeah, we may disagree over things in the middle. Right. Like right now, Paul, do you have a beard or not? I don't know. Are you just, you, you might have, have a beard. A it might scruff. be kind of yeah. not quite there <laughs> not yet. Quite, okay. Yeah. But we would know your beard yeah, he from does. Jorge's yes. over there who's got the yeah. full beard, right? That's a beard, that's a beard. right? Yep. Okay. So just that's because right. we're ambiguous about stuff in, in between yep. doesn't mean there aren't objective Right. Uh, ends of of our investigation. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you might find some person attractive and the next person doesn't find that person attractive, but everybody could see the difference between something like a beautiful sunset and a garbage dump, right? right. Everybody knows the sunset's mm -hmm. beautiful and right. the garbage dump isn't. That's right. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, how about you have a chapter here on love? <laughs> We're all after that. What's yes. that about? Yeah, again, uh, uh, exactly this feature of the world that we we want, right? We all want there to be genuine love. And mm -hmm. so explore what is the nature of love and actually walk through some of the contemporary um, philosophical theories on mm -hmm. what love is and, and ultimately argue again that Aquinas, this 13th century celibate monk, got it right, um, that love is this longing for two, uh, this desire for two things, the well-being of the beloved mm -hmm. and union with the beloved. Mm. And so that's what love is. So yeah, so did some conceptual spade work on what is the nature of love. I think I think Aquinas actually got it right. And then the question is, well, wait a minute. We see, we seem to all experience this. Hopefully, most of us do. Hopefully, all of us have. But what explains this, right? Again, um, it's sort of surprising on naturalism that we would have this kind of deep, enduring love. And I walk through these features of love. Uh, but on the Christian story, um, love is actually at the foundation of reality itself, right? It's the bedrock fact. In fact, the universe was created out of love, mm -hmm. and so it makes sense that this kind of love would find instances in the universe. Mm -hmm. right? But on the naturalistic story, it's late. 
It's local as far as we know on the earth, right? Through at least the human species, maybe others, I don't know. Um, and it's, it's something that, you know, on some stories like Michael Roos, who's a, a an atheist, mm -hmm, he, mm -hmm. he says that it's, it's kind of an illusion, right? Mm -hmm. So, so it's, it doesn't fit, right? And mm -hmm. so again, you have this argument, it's surprising on naturalism, on theism, it's what you would expect. And that's, there's actually some evidential force then for the existence of love to the existence of a God who is love. So you said Aquinas said that love is at least seeking what's good for the other person and then being united. Mm -hmm. And yep. isn't that interesting? When even you see a beautiful landscape, say a beautiful mountain, right. it's you almost want to unite with it. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, can I hug the mountain? Right. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Can't, I don't even take pictures of that be stuff there. anymore yeah. because mm -hmm. you can't you can't approximate it. Right. Mm -hmm. But tragically, I think in our culture, people think love means approval. Mm -hmm. Like you're going to, mm -hmm. you, if you love me, you'll approve of what I want to do, particularly on the sexual issues. Right? right. But of course, every parent knows that if you approve of everything your child wants to do, you're not loving, you're unloving. You, right. you need to seek what's best for that individual. That's right. And that often means telling them the truth, even when mm -hmm. they don't like it. Paul says, love always protects. Not this Paul, but you probably do too, Paul. You <laughs> yeah, probably say the other that. One, the better one. Yeah. 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 Love yeah. always protects. Yes. Love yeah. rejoices in the truth. That's right. So that's what we need to do. Now, the final chapter in the book a good and true nature, or, I'm sorry, a good and true story mm -hmm. is religion. So what's that about? Yeah, so the metaphor, central metaphor in the book, is, as you can see on the front cover there, mm -hmm. the, is the idea that, that God is, there's stones, cairns. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, think about hiking a mountain peak and you're trying to get to the summit and there's these cairns, these stacked stones that guide you along mm -hmm. the way. And so the, the metaphor is that each of these clues act like stones that we're stacking one on top of the, mm -hmm. of the other as, the, as we guide toward the summit, towards the goal of our faith. And so the last clue uh, that would only be fitting in the book is religion and the fact that all cultures, historical and contemporary, have been deeply religious. And so then the question is, um, and at this point, I think, you know, I've argued pretty clearly, I hope, that there is something beyond this world, right? There's, there is a true story that includes a transcendent God. And so then the question is, well, wait a minute, of all the religions, which one is true? Right, and so, so there it was kind of the most personal of the chapters where I shared a little bit of my own journey and just begin with this question, can they all be true? Mm -hmm. And there, as a point of simple logic, they can't all be true, right? Because mm -hmm. they contradict each other. And then it moves from there. If they can't all be true, then it moves to the question of which one has the most evidence. And I just kind of share, not just for me in my own journey, going back to your question about how, how I want became a Christian going to that apologetics class, I was persuaded by all the evidence for the resurrection, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that, wow, there's all these good reasons to believe. And so, um, shared about that a little bit. But then the last piece, and I'll end here, is that all, all the um, things that we've talked about perfectly fit together, right, on the Christian story. Mm -hmm. this light universe, the universe and, and the contours of the human heart and our quest for happiness, all these things find their fulfillment in the Christian story, that it indeed is not just a good and beautiful story, but it's the true story, as Lewis would say, it's true myth, right? It's the thing that unites head and heart or reason and romance in this perfect blend, and that's the beauty of the gospel story. Now, Paul, if we're going to be scientific, we're going to reason from effect to cause, and that's what you've done in this book, right? Yeah, We've got a right. universe that's an effect, you're reasoning back to a cause, a creator. You've got design. That's the effect. You're reasoning yep. back to a cause, a designer. Moral law, meaning. All these things go back to what appear to be a God uh, of some kind. And, of course, when you look at the Christian worldview or you look at the evidence for the resurrection, you say, well, it's got to be the Christian God. But you're on college campus. You're on a college campus. You're, on, you're at uh, Palm Beach, Atlantic. And I don't assume that everybody that goes to your school is a Christian. Mm -hmm. And it, right. maybe they, they claim they be. But... This seems so reasonable. Why do people resist it? 
Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Um, why do people resist it? Well, because it's a, because uh, we have a will that sometimes has their fist. That's the wrong metaphor, right? But sometimes mm -hmm. our fist is is uh, wanting to live our own life and wanting mm -hmm. to go our own way. And uh, and so I think it's all at the end of the day. And this is what became so clear to me in my own journey that I had all these intellectual questions and doubts. And I think we we obviously we need to deal with them. But oftentimes, and this is what it was for me, they were smoke screens, right? For me, mm. it was just a question of the will. Mm. And I even go back to like Augustine and his whole journey. You know, he, in the confessions, he shares his spiritual autobiography. And he basically says he came to this point where he now believed that Christianity was true. And then he, there's this famous chapter in Book 8 where he praised a lady chastity, you know, give me uh, um, chastity, but just not yet, right? You <laughs> not know, yet. like I'm just That's not right. ready to do it. Like <laughs> it was the moral thing. Uh -huh. and, and so, yes, it's the head, but it's the heart too. It's the will. And I just think that, you know, that's, that's part of the journey. And so my hope here was just to, to be a gentle guide, right? Expose mm -hmm. them to these deep longings mm -hmm. of the heart and the mm -hmm. truths. And then, you know, we can't, you can't force anyone into the kingdom, but allow them. I think that in awakening these longings, looking at these features, hopefully the Holy Spirit will do his work. And, yeah. yeah. That too often we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, as Paul says. It's not about... <clears throat> God's existence, it's quite often about our resistance. That's right. We don't want it to be true. Now, Paul, where can people learn more about you and see some more of your work? Do you have a website? Yeah, you can find me online, paul-gould.com. Um, and then I'm on you know, Facebook and Twitter, and you can find me at the university faculty page as well at Palm Beach Atlantic University. Oh, okay, and uh, you've written 11 other books, so this mm -hmm. is just one of them. This is the most recent. And what do you teach down there? Is it mostly philosophy? Or? Yeah, so I teach, I actually lead an, an MA in philosophy of yeah. religion program. And so we go kind of deep into the whole bedrock of of the gospel, uh, I'm sorry, of philosophy and and uh, at, a, at an MA level. So well, thanks so much for being on the show, Paul. Yeah. Thanks, Ray. All thanks right. for having me. That's Paul Gould, ladies and gentlemen. The book, again, is called A Good and True Story. You definitely want to pick it up. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks for so much for, if you're listening to this on radio, realizing there's a bonus podcast in the middle of the week. Uh, it comes out on Tuesday. You're not going to hear it on the radio. Look for I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, the podcast, and you can hear it there. And I'll see you here next week, Lord willing.